Uh, we're continuing in our Overwhelmed series through the Minor Prophets, little visited area of Scripture, uh, but important stuff in here. Uh, in the Overwhelmed series, you're overwhelmed uh, by what God is doing here, so I'm looking forward to talking about that. We talk about the Minor Prophets. We're into the Old Testament. Sometimes you get into the Old Testament or the Older Testament, the Old Covenant, however you want to term it. Uh, sometimes there's terms and things that are unfamiliar, like this one, uh, this one mom uh, who was trying to teach her daughter some Christmas carols, and she was singing the, carol, the Christmas carol that said the cattle were in the field lowing. And the daughter said, well, what's, what's that mean? And he said, well, oh, it's, you know, sometimes there's some, uh, you know, Old Testament, they, they said the cattle used some different words, and her sister just cleared it right up. She said, no, in the Old Testament, cattle lowed. In the New Testament, they moo. Uh. Went over just as well as it did in the first service. Um, <laughs> But I'm sorry, they had to suffer through that bad joke, and you did too. But here's the point. Uh, we get into the minor prophets, and sometimes you're like, who are they, and where are they, uh, and what are you talking about? Because it's this little-known part of Scripture, 12 little books at the end of the Old Testament. Um, and uh, they're, I would say, uh, sometimes not visited. They're like that neighborhood that sometimes you pass by but don't stop in. There's some things that are hard to understand in there and some confusing things, and yet some really good things and some really things that are important to us. And so we're taking some time between now and Christmas uh, to spend in some of these little-known books to find some important truths that are there. Last week we looked at Hosea. This week we're going to look at another book. Uh, and we're going to look at this topic of this. How do you act? How do you react? How do you respond when you come against a disaster, a difficulty, maybe even a tragedy in your life? Uh, we all have times where we're going to do this. You know, one person I, I've heard say, well, actually I've probably heard multiple people say this, you're either, you know, you're either coming out of a, a disaster, you're in the middle of one, or you're going into one. You know, you're kind of in life a lot of times in one of those three places. You're, you're coming out of a difficulty, or maybe you're right in the middle of a difficulty, or at some point not too long in the future, you are going to be in a difficulty. And how do you respond in the midst of that? Sometimes there are personal difficulties, and then other times there's these corporate like uh, national large difficulties and tragedies we experience, right? Um, many of you, like me, might be able to remember exactly where you were on that crisp Tuesday morning. Um, at least if you were living in this part of the country, it was a crisp, cool, clear Tuesday morning. And I was sitting in Starbucks in Burlington when it was the only Starbucks in Burlington. And I was sitting there with Pastor Bob Crosby, who is the pastor of this church uh, prior to me. And we were having a cup of coffee, and his phone rang, and uh, someone told us that a plane had just flown into the World Trade Center. And in that moment, you, you know, we didn't know what to make of it. You know, it's a really bad pilot. It's, it's bad aviation. What's going on? You know, so you just kind of go on with your cup of coffee, and you don't know what's going on. That's, that's hard news, but who knows what's happening. And then we came back here, and... I watched a little black and white television and saw that second plane fly into the building. Um, and then you realize something's not right here. Something's bigger going on. And we experienced what might be called a national tragedy and disaster. And how would we respond as a nation? How would we respond as a people to things like that? You have that on that large scale, a national scale, where right? we have the one 
this past week with the shooting in Texas and the church shooting in Texas. Just a week ago, we were sitting in church here. I didn't hear anything about it. I didn't hear anything about it till much later in the day. Um, and in Texas, you know, you have this, these people sitting in church there and 26 people end up being murdered and killed uh, on that day and in that, um, uh, in that situation. And, and I'd ask you to continue to pray. That's what I've been praying uh, for those families um, and that have experienced that. In fact, why don't we just take a moment now, uh, right now, and pray for that church and those families. And uh, Lord, we just come before you right now and think about it as we are sitting in these chairs today. And uh, many of us feel very safe and very comfortable, and it's a place familiar to us. And yet we know that that's probably the exact same feelings these people had last week in sitting in their church and singing and worshiping and listening to the word and not expecting that tragedy was going to change their lives and families' lives in a moment. Lord, we pray for those families where we ask that you would continue to send your comfort and your mercy. Lord, that you would continue to strengthen them and that they may know your compassion and your love in this time in their lives, Lord. Father, I pray for this pastor and this church uh, who has the eyes of the country and even the world watching. What will they do and how will they respond? Even as we're talking about how to respond to tragedy and disaster, we pray that you would give that pastor wisdom, guidance, Lord, give that church and that community wisdom and guidance how not only to grieve, uh, but also to glorify Christ even in the midst of their grief and their pain, Lord. And Lord, so we ask you to guide them and lead them and comfort them this day. In Jesus' name, amen. In those times when tragedy strikes, disaster hits, happens on a corporate and a national way, but it also happens in a personal way. And your life um, you know, last week in our prayer time, we mentioned a couple prayer needs. One was for the Viola family, who, Steve Viola, who died, you know, at 58 years old, second bout of cancer. That man squeezed more into 58 years of life than I have known 90-year-old people squeeze into their life, help more people. He was a beautiful life, and yet, um, for many of us, you know, that was too soon, too short. And it's always too soon and too short, right, with someone we love. Uh, if, if they die young, it seems way too soon. If they die when they're older, it still seems too soon. You've had them there your whole life, and, and now they're gone, and it seems too soon. We talked about Mike and Melissa D'Agostino, and thank you for your prayers for them. You're 19 weeks pregnant, and they lost their baby, and talked to them last night, and God's upholding them and strengthening them. But again, that those things strike in you. Many of you have had that come into your life. And, uh, and, and say, okay, well, you're looking forward to this baby. Everything's going in this direction. Everything's pointing. All signs are pointing towards, you know, towards this. And then something breaks in and intrudes upon your life. Now, how do you respond in that moment? Corporate tragedy, personal tragedy, how do you respond in that moment? When it comes to God and our, you know, relationship to God in church, I think a lot of times many people respond in one of two ways when it comes to God. They either run to God or they run away from God. They run to God or they run away from God. For those of us sitting in a church on a Sunday morning, we may think, well, it sounds strange that someone will run away from God in a time of difficulty, but it's not that strange. It happens a lot. In fact, it happens to church people. I've talked to church people who, you know, I, I would talk to them and say, you know, we haven't seen you in church in a while. Where you been? And they'd give you a reason or something, and they don't really want to tell you the reason sometimes when I've had conversations, but you eventually get around to the conversation that something happened in their life, 
And they ended up running away from God and rather to God because they didn't expect that to happen. Because sometimes there's this theology that creeps into our minds and our hearts that, well, if I'm a Christian and I follow Christ and I go to church, well, things are going to go well for me all the time. And I won't be sick and I won't be hurt and disaster won't strike me and tragedy won't hurt me. And so when it does, either it doesn't work or I'm doing something wrong. Or God doesn't care about me or I've done something that God can't care about me. And none of those things are true. Those are all lies that, that we come to believe. God is able. He's loving. He's good. He cares. But we come to believe these lies. And if you believe that lie, then you think, well, if something comes into my life, that's not good. And, and it, it would cause me to run away from God. Because it hasn't helped me in this situation. But it's like a, a child. It's funny. Children sometimes at different ages, I've noticed as, as a parent, that sometimes, you know, when they're young enough, even though they know, like, like they don't know enough sometimes to hide. You know, like, like they're, just, they're just like running up. And I, 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 I could, I'm not going to tell some stories on my kids because I haven't asked them the permission. But there is times, right, where they do something and they just walk right up to you. Like, yeah, I got cookie crumbs all over my hands, you know. There's crayon all over the wall, you know. And they're just walking up, and they're like, hey, how are you? They run right to you. They don't care. You know, but then they get a little older, and, you know. It's, it's, it's the second and third time. And then the crayon's on the wall, and you can't find them anywhere. You know, they're hiding someplace. And it's the same thing with us. I think there are people sometimes, the disaster strikes your life, sometimes you run away from God. And then sometimes you run to God. There are people that run to God in those situations, and maybe that's you. Maybe that's your situation. But here's the thing. Even if you're a type of person that in a disaster strikes and tragedy hits, and you're the type of person that runs to God, do you know there's a right way to run to God and a wrong way to run to God? There is a right way to run to God in response to a tragedy and a disaster, and then there is a wrong way to run to God. There is a way that God sees, understands, it gets in that place and meets you there. And there's a way that I think sometimes people run to God or we run to God and he's really not interested. And that may sound strange to you, but let's look at the book of Joel this morning. We come to this part of the book of Joel chapter two. And if you want to turn, if you want to use your uh, Bible in the chair there. I think it's uh, page 761 in the, if you grab one of the Bibles out of one of the racks in the chairs, page 761. Joel, if you're not using one of the Bibles, it's probably three quarters of the way so through, uh, through your Bible there. Joel, um, so we come to the book of Joel. We come to a situation where Joel is speaking on behalf of God to the people of God right after or in the midst of of a national tragedy. And the national tragedy is this. There, was, there has been a, a plague, a storm of locusts that have come and decimated their community. And, um, and if you, you know, you and I, if we haven't had a lot of, I haven't had a lot of experience with locusts. Maybe you've had a lot of experience with locusts. Um, but I, I really haven't, so I had to kind of look up what's so big deal about locusts. You know, I mean, I've had bugs in my yard. I mean, come on, what's the big deal? Uh, but there is a big deal about locusts. Here's what I learned. A swarm of locusts will consume any green vegetation in its path, even toxic plants, and can decimate a farmer's field almost as soon as it descends. In one day, the mass of insects, one day, 
can munch its way through the equivalent amount of food as 15 million people would consume in the same period. So one day of locusts eats as much food as 15 million people would eat in that same day. So the food supply of 15 million people they can consume in one day. Um, the equivalent of 15 million, with billions of insects covering an area the size of Cairo, Egypt, would be a, a locust storm. Huge. Huge. I mean, the entire, I don't know how big Cairo is, but I've got to believe it's bigger than Burlington. Uh, could you imagine the entire city of Burlington? You know, nowhere to go. Every, you know, and, and covered in insects and every green thing gone in an instant. And if that's where your food supply is, suddenly you're decimated. And you are living at a time where this famine is going on. There's no food going on. And it is a national and personal tragedy. And how do you respond in the time of national and personal tragedy? Well, that's what Joel is speaking to them on behalf of uh, speaking God's word to them. And so Joel chapter 2, verses 12 to 17, is where we're going to look at today. So they're in this national tragedy, this, this thing that's happened to them. And, and then Joel says this, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will return and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people. Consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is your God? And so in the midst of this tragedy or right after this tragedy, what do you do in that place of personal and national disaster? Joel gives these instructions. Return to the Lord. Return to the Lord. He preaches to the people and he tells the people, return to God. And that's what many people do. After 9-11, there were a lot of churches that were full that Sunday morning. A lot of places of worship that saw a lot of people that hadn't been to church in a long time. A lot of people ran and returned to God. But here's the thing. There's a way to run to God that God hears and understands. And then there's a wrong way to run to God. There's a right way and a wrong way to run to God. And what I'm afraid of is that sometimes we get caught up and our world gets caught up in the wrong way to run to God. Because normally, because what can happen is this. People don't really run to God. They just run to religion. They don't run to God, they just run to doing more religious activities in their life. And Joel puts it this way in verse 13. He says, rend your hearts and not your garments. Well, rending of a garment was seen as something in Joel's culture of, of an act of contrition and an act of worship. 
that you are so emotionally overwhelmed and you're so, uh, you're, you're so distraught over the situation that you would actually rip your clothes apart. And I thought about trying to do that this morning, but I just, there's no way I could figure that it was going to end well. So I'm not going to rip my clothes today. But that was the act. It was an act of worship, an act of contrition that you would render. And what Joel is saying is, but these outward acts have become detached and all they are is outward religious acts. And he's saying, some of you are running to God in the wrong way because you're really running to religion. And the truth is, you want the cure, but you don't want the healer. You want things to be fixed, but you don't want to have to change. You want the gift, but you don't want the giver. You want what God can do, but not really interested in God. We run to religion and ask the question, what do I need to do to get what I want? What do I need to do in order to get what I want? That's really what often our world does, that they run to religion and religious acts and say, okay, if I can do this, then I'll get that from God. We don't really run to God. We run to religion. And there's a danger in that. You might say, well, hey, people are in church. Aren't you just happy about that? No, people get to church, whatever it takes. I hear that. But here's the danger. The danger is you almost become inoculated to the real relationship with God. When we run to religion and not to God, you can almost become inoculated to what really God is looking for. Here's what it looks like. And I think this is a real danger in the world that we're living in. I think it's a real danger in our life and in our world right now. And, and here's what I mean. I want to say something here that I want to give you a warning about what I see as a strategy that's used against your soul and mine. And here's how it looks in the face of a tragedy or a, or a disaster. Uh, what happens? We, something happens that rocks our world. Corporate or personal, national or maybe personal. Something just happens that rocks your world. Somebody dies that you didn't expect to die. You find out some truth about someone that you never thought would be true. Somebody betrays you. Uh, something happens like last week in Texas. What, whatever it might be, these things affect us differently. Something rocks your world. And so we go to church. We do the church things. Stand in silence. We say prayers. We hear an inspirational message. Maybe we shed a tear or two. And then we leave. And you stand on the stoop outside. You open the door and that cool air hits you right in the face. And you look up and the sun is coming right at your eyes and you squint a little and you block the sun with your eyes and you start walking out. You reach your hand in your pocket, grab your car keys, hit the button and the lights blink like they always do. Go to your car and you open the door, you get in, you sit behind the wheel and close the door. And in that moment, it seems like everything's going to be all right. After a few minutes, you turn the radio on and it's playing songs you always listen to and that are familiar to you. A radio voice comes on, maybe on a talk show, talk radio that you're used to hearing. You drive by a coffee shop that you don't normally stop at, but today's different. Today's out of the ordinary, so you decide to stop and let someone else make you a cup of coffee today. You get a cup of coffee and you think, well, I'm going to get a, today's different, I'm going to get a donut or a bagel too. 
until you get that and you sit down at the table and you watch people coming in and going out, watch people on the sidewalk outside the door and cars driving by. And in that moment, at some place over that sip of coffee, you stop and you look around and you think things are going to be okay. Things are going to be all right. There are two things happening in that moment. One is a sense of comfort. But the second, if we're not careful, is lulling us into a false sense of security. The feel of the key fob in our hands, the familiar beep of the car when we hit the button, the sound of the bell in the coffee shop when someone comes in or leaves, the taste of the donut or the coffee, Someplace in there, it says everything's going to be fine. Just go back to your normal life. Nothing has really changed. You do this enough times, and you no longer need the church part. I think that's kind of what's going on in our world right now. You just go straight to the coffee shop, or the mall, or the sports arena, or the gym, Wherever that place is, that's just normal for you. And you're in that place. And at some point, you just think, yeah, everything's going to be all right. Everything's going to be back to normal. Everything's going to be fine. What was I worried about? We're really not interested in truly changing. What we want is a couple of cookies, one glass of milk, and a nice bedtime story. And then we go back to living our lives, knowing that everything is going to be okay. And that's often, I think, the religious approach, that we run to God. We just want to go in long enough to get out and think, okay, everything's going to be okay. The only problem is God's not interested in that type of relationship with us. That doesn't get his attention. In fact, I think in Scripture we find that turns him away from people. If religion is our hope, it's not going to go well for us. See, God's not interested in just this idea of us doing religious acts for him. He really wants something more than that. See, the right way to run to God is not in religious acts, but in true repentance. So that Joel says, rend your hearts and not your garments. Oh, we've ranked our schedule. We showed up at church on a Sunday morning. Pastor, don't you know, I got a friend at home drinking coffee and raking leaves today. Glad I'm not them. I'm doing much better than them. I showed up to church. I got friends, you know, they're at the beach today. They're out, who knows? Well, maybe not the beach. I don't know. <laughs> it was cold when I got here a while ago. It's probably still cold out there. This, 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 you know, they're all doing all kinds of things. I, we rent our schedule. We rent our checkbooks. Uh, we, we, we put money in the offering. We did that. But we have to be careful. And we're not running to religion instead of running to God. Rend your hearts, not your garments. It's not just the outer acts that God's looking for. It's an inner heart of love that God is looking for. What's that look like? Jesus told a, he told a parable once. And Jesus told a parable about a religious person and a pretty non-religious person. It's in Luke chapter 18, and it says this. 
says, he also told this parable to some who trusted themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. This is what Jesus said. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, that's a really religious person, and the other, a tax collector. That was a really non-religious person. You may think tax collecting is just a job now, but back then, the way they got their money or earned their money was they collected the tax that Rome deserved, and then they collected some money for themselves. And you're usually doing that from your neighbors. And so they weren't well looked upon. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And in this story, Jesus gives us a picture of the right way to run to God. But the right way to run to God is with a heart of repentance and humility. The Pharisee ran with his religious acts. I'm not an adulterer. I don't do this stuff, and I do all this stuff you want, and thank God that this is who I am. And I'm not like those other people sitting at home today doing watching Netflix. We can get that way. It's the wrong way to run to God. The right way to run to God, God be merciful to me, a sinner. God, I don't bring anything to the table except my sin and my need for your grace and mercy. And Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Come with a repentant heart. Lord, I don't understand all the things that are going on, and I don't understand why this disaster or why this tragedy or why this difficulty hit, but Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I run to you. I run to you as the only one who can meet me in this place and who has any answers to this situation. See, if we're going to be truly repentant to God, it's got to disrupt and interrupt the normal flow of our lives. Look at verse 16 of Joel chapter 2. It says this, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Joel is, the Lord is saying through Joel this, look, if you're going to get serious about coming to God, it's going to interrupt and disrupt the normal flow of your life. Even things as significant, if you put that verse up again, even things as significant as things that depend upon, your life depends on. Gather the children, even nursing infants, even the very smallest that are involved in activities just to keep them alive. Get them here because their lives are going to be interrupted and disrupted if we're going to truly get serious about meeting God. Get the bride, get the groom out of his room and the bride out of her chamber. Even those ones that are planning significant events in their life, and this is a significant time in their life on this earth, this is more important than that. That God and you're calling out to him and you're returning to him is going to disrupt and interrupt the daily flow of your life. And that if it doesn't, maybe we're running to religion and not to God. 
How does the fact that you are a committed follower of Jesus Christ disrupt and interrupt your life? How does it make you different? How does it change the way you live? How does it change the way you make decisions? How does it change the way you and I handle money or the way we handle uh, decisions or relationships in our lives? How does it change those things? Because if we're going to be serious about following God, following God ought to disrupt and interrupt our daily schedules, our daily lives, and ought to come before and in front of anything else in this world. And yet we can get so loud into thinking it's all about this here and now. And that's where the danger comes in. That's where the danger comes in. And here it is. Here's the real danger. Because you see, Joel is not really talking about locusts. In fact, he's only using the locusts as an illustration. He's only using the tragedy of the locusts as an illustration. Because if you read the rest of Joel, he uses this other term that may be a strange term to you, but you'll come across it a lot in the Minor Prophets, and the term is the day of the Lord. And what he says is this, the day of the Lord is a really theologically packed term that I'll unpack a little bit for you, but not a whole lot. But it's a theologically packed term. And what he's essentially saying is, look, you think this locust thing is bad. You think this is difficult. There's a day coming that's going to make this one seem easy. And here's what Joel sees in the day of the war. Let me explain it to you because this is going to come up in the minor prophets a little bit. When you're looking from the perspective of a minor prophet, Okay, they're looking forward. They're on the other side of the cross, right? If this is the cross, we're back in history before the cross. Joel is probably 800 B.C. or so, okay? So he is looking forward into the future, giving a prophecy. And what he often sees, because, you know, those things haven't been made clear by God, is a two-dimensional kind of view where events that may be separated by time are compressed when he's talking about them. Here's what I mean. So you have Jesus, well, 800 years after Joel, you've got the cross and you've got Jesus coming. We'll next month celebrate Christmas, the incarnation of, of our Lord coming to this earth, the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And that's a significant event in, in not only world history, but, but in theological history of what God's doing. That's significant. And so he sees that, some of the things that are going to happen at that event, the church has begun, God's spirit is poured out. He sees that, but then he also sees way down in history, this other day. This other day when God is going to say enough. Enough is enough. That enough is enough that this is going to end. The earth as you know it, the things you see as you know it, the coffee shops, the bells, the fobs, the keys, the cars, all as you know it, all of this comes to an end. New heaven, new earth, no more sin, no more sickness, no disease. I'm remaking it the way it was supposed to be in the first place. And at that point, there's judgment, there's heaven, there's hell, there's eternity for the souls of men and women. But from Joel's perspective, he sees them together. And so he talks about the day of the Lord, and some of the times he'll talk about the day of the Lord, and he'll talk about this great day where God's Spirit is poured out on men and women. But then in the same breath, he talks about the fact that a day of judgment is coming, and you need to be ready for it. And so what Joel is saying is, look, the locust thing is just a picture, just a reminder, just a wake-up call to say, pay attention because there's something much more serious down the road. Now, look, I'm, here's what happens. Every time we have a natural or some kind of disaster in our country, 
some preacher's going to come out on the internet or on TV or just to get, and they're going to say, well, this disaster is because of this. I heard it even last week about the church shooting. And I'm not even going to give credit to what they said because I don't know, I buy into it. But this disaster happened because you did this or we did that. And I don't know. I don't know. I'm a little suspicious or skeptical when those, when those claims are made when you're going to link one to another and you definitively know that this is this. And, and I think you have to be careful about those things. But here's what I do know. What I do know is what Joel knew and that this national tragedy should wake us up to the reality of what is real and what is most important in life. That it should, that it's, whether it's a hurricane or a church shooting or a flood or a whatever, tornado, whatever it is, it ought to at least, or a plague of locusts, say, look, let this be a reminder. You, this is difficult, but there is the day of the Lord coming that you really need to be ready for. You need to be ready in these tragedies for what happens to your physical body, but you really need to be ready for what happens to your spirit and your soul. That let it be a wake-up call for you. And those things, I think, used to be wake-up calls for us. I'm afraid they're not anymore. I'm afraid if 9-11 or something like that happened again today, the churches wouldn't necessarily be full again. I don't know. I just think our society has changed a lot in 16 years. That we'd run to the coffee shops and the sports stadiums and the other places more than we'd run to the churches. I don't know that funerals serve as the wake-up call that they used to in our world. Going to a funeral used to be the place not only where you would go and comfort those who have lost loved ones, but also the place you would consider your own mortality and remember that there's more to this life than this life. But I don't know that we do that anymore. They're so quick, nobody takes time even to consider those things at times. But what Joel is saying, look, let this locust be a wake-up call. Let it be a place that, that sparks something in you that says, I've got to consider what's really real in this life. And so how you respond to God or how you run to God is it with a repentant, humble heart. Why do you run to God? Joel says it right there in verse 13. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. And then verse 14 says this, who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Well, I would say that's changed. From where Joel was 800 years ago to the cross to where we live right now, somewhere between the cross and the second day of the Lord when Jesus comes back, that we no longer have to say, who knows whether God will show us his love and compassion. We can say definitively that if you will turn to God, that he will pour out his love and compassion and forgiveness on you because things have changed. The cross changed everything. And you say, well, Pastor, how do you know that's true? Well, we look a little bit further in Joel chapter 2 and verse 28, and it says this. He says, and it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. 
Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and I will show wonders in the heavens on the earth, blood and fire, columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The apostle Peter, when he was preaching on Pentecost, he said, this is that day. God has poured out his spirit on men and women and young men and old men. This is that day. This has happened. This is where we're living. The Joel's prophecy has been fulfilled. And now we're living in that time. Now there's some other things that Joel said in there where the visions come together. The moon turned to blood yet. The sun disappeared yet. The star is gone yet. No, not yet. Because Joel was seeing the whole thing in the day of the Lord down here. He was seeing that. And, he, and that hasn't happened yet. But the Spirit, as Peter said, the Spirit has been poured out. That has been begun. And not only that, now we live in that place where everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And how do we know that? Because Paul, in Romans chapter 10, takes up this, and the Apostle Paul, and he says this. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not who knows, not maybe, not perhaps, you will be saved. And he goes on to say, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For, Romans chapter 10, verse 13, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul is quoting Joel, and he's saying what Joel said 800 years ago is now true because we live on this side of the cross of Jesus Christ. That it's no longer who knows, that it's no longer if, it's everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we live in this time between the cross and this day of the Lord that's coming, and we have the opportunity to respond and return to the Lord. The only question is, will you return in the way that God wants, or will you try and run and play religious games. And this is what God offers us. And this is what God calls us to. And when you run to God, run with repentance, not with religion. Not with religion. God's no more interested in religion than you are. He's interested in repentance and a loving heart. And a loving heart. we close this morning, I'm going to ask our music ministry to come back, and I want to share this last illustration with you as we close. Um, Matt Redman, singer, songwriter, he was a worship leader at a church in England, and um, church was growing, and Matt was a great worship leader, and things were going well, and, but uh, the pastor felt like there was something in the church that was wrong, and they were in their church acting more like consumers, concert goers, than they were like worshipers. And so the pastor one Sunday came in and, and he, uh, he said, that's it. All the instruments off the stage. No guitars, no keyboards, no drums. Take them all off the stage. No microphones. Everything off. We're going to get back to just worshiping God. And so that's what happened for weeks and months. But they would come in, and they would come into church, and it would just be a cappella worship. And every week, they'd be reminded of the fact that they are not consumers, and partic- not consumers, but participants in worship. And eventually, they brought the, 
instruments back on, but not before Matt Redmond, who was the worship leader, in that time, in that place when he's sitting around with his team, given a song by God. And that song was the heart of worship. And we've sung it in this church many times. It's, not, it's kind of an older song now. But the words are, I think, very relevant to this message. And when music fades and all is stripped away, and I simply come, you search much deeper within. You're looking into my heart. And I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And it's all about you. It's all about you. And that is running to God with a heart of repentance. That it's all about worshiping God. That it's not about, I need to get what I can get. I just need to know that things are going to be okay and that life's going to be normal and that I can go on with my life and everything's going to be fine. No, it's about understanding that the reality I see and everything I enjoy in this life, whether it's the cup of coffee or the car or, the, or, or, or the, the comfortable bed or the nice house or whatever it is, it all points to the God, a good God who gave them and allowed me to receive them. And if they're not pointing back to them, then they're, to him, then they're pointing away from him and they're not serving the purpose that God has given them to you for. Because everything God has given you, the Bible says, every good gift comes from Him. And it ought to turn back as a means to an end of pointing us to Him. Saying, God, you are so awesome and so wonderful that we will bless your name. The stuff we see, this isn't really real. The real reality is the stuff we don't see that lives on for eternity. And we get so focused on this stuff. We get so worried about the locusts and the food. And that's important. But I think what Joel says is right. Let this just be a sign and a reminder that there's some bigger stuff you need to be concerned about. Get your heart right with God. Get right with the Almighty. Come with a heart that is humble to Him. Get that right. Jesus put it this way. Seek the Lord with all your heart. And all these other things will be added to you. All these other things, stuff of this world, you don't have to worry about it. In fact, he says you don't even have to pray about it. Somewhere he said, look, the birds of the air, they're fed. Flowers of the field, they're clothed. Your Father takes care of them. Don't worry about those things. Just worry about seek God with your whole heart whole strength. Seek Him. So as we close out this morning, as we sing this song, I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're just going to respond to God's Word today with this song. And I'm going to ask you to respond, and however God is leading, you may be here, and you've got to come, and you've got to, you've, you've been playing religious games. You've been giving God an hour of your week, hour and a half, I guess we're at, this, an hour and 15 minutes we're at this morning. You've been giving God some time in your week, some things, but it hasn't really disrupted, interrupted, and changed your life in such a way that God has your heart. And you know what? Only you know that. Only you and God know that. If you're married, even your spouse doesn't know that. Only you and God know if God has your heart. Only you and God know if you're running to God with true repentance and a humble heart. 
or if you're just playing games and hoping no one notices. What God is looking for is for you not to rend your garments, not the outward expression of religion. He's looking for a heart that's humble, that loves him, that will follow him. And so as we sing the song, uh, we'll have some leaders up front. Some of our elders will be up here to pray for you if you would like someone to pray with you. And you're welcome to come up and they'll pray with you. But also we'll just open up these altars as we sing. And maybe you want to come and kneel or stand and just spend some time with the Lord in prayer. We call this an altar because an altar is a place where people come and meet with God. In the Old Testament, an altar was a place that people would bring animal sacrifices. We don't need animal sacrifices anymore. The Bible's clear. Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice for us. But the Bible's also clear that if you're a Christian, that you live your life as a living sacrifice to God, that your life is laid on God's altar as a living sacrifice. And the problem with a living sacrifice is it can crawl off the altar. And so sometimes we need to come back to the altar and just say, God, I lay my life down once again. I lay my heart down once again to you. God, I'm yours. God, if there's anything in my heart that is not pure and right and good, Lord, would you cleanse me and lead me. Lord, I want to be yours. And so these altars will be open, and if you come up, we'll pray for you. And um, just pray that God would give you that heart for worship. Lord, thank you for this word from a place and maybe a book in the Bible those of us who are Christians maybe not even have spent a whole lot of time in. And yet, what an important lesson. What an important word for us. Rend our hearts and our garments. Lord, forgive us the times we have thought our religious acts would earn anything with you. Lord, help us to be a people who would live for you in true repentance and who would offer you our hearts and our lives. Lord, you have held nothing back from us. You've given us your own son, yourself. May we hold nothing back from you. Lead us today. In Jesus' name.